Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. My first ministry was in a college town, three different colleges, so constant influx of people who were in that stage of life where it is very common to get married. Church that I worked at just so happened to look like a traditional wedding chapel. So first couple years in, in, in ministry, I did a truly impressive amount of weddings. Lots of young people so excited to start their journey of life together. Every now and then, you get an older couple that wanted to renew their vows, which from one perspective is kind of an odd thing to do. You're gathering people together to make a declaration that you've already made, exchanging vows that you've already exchanged, promising to do what you're already doing. But there's something about it that's really powerful. See, what you and I both know is when that young couple wants to get married, they are looking at each other with rose-colored lenses, right? Because the early stages of a relationship are called the enchantment stages, where even though you know hypothetically that the person that you're with is not perfect, all those little things that they do wrong, they're cute, and they're sweet, and they're adorable, and then you get married, and that goes away real quick. Then you get married, you have good times and bad. You have highs and lows. You have fights, arguments. You say things to each other that you should never say to another human being. When you're dating, you see each other at your best. In marriage, you also see each other at your worst. And the beautiful thing about a renewal of vows is that what the couple is declaring is after all the things they've been through on this journey of life that took both of them to places that they never imagined that they would go, after all the hurts and the mistakes and the errors and seeing that other person at their worst, they're declaring they still feel the same way. They're still committed to the same thing. And there's something really powerful about that. So this week, we're, we're getting close to the end of our study through Nehemiah, which we began in September of last year. And as I look at these last couple weeks, especially this week, I look at it and I go, man, the guy that designed this series is an idiot. <laughs> you don't have to say, yeah, that loud, okay? We can know that it's true and not have to say it, <laughs> right? But look at them, I'm like, oh, this week was six verses, and this week was eight verses, and this week there's two chapters, and two chapters that can't even really be fully understood without looking at the last verse of the chapter before that. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we are going to begin in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and we are going to go all the way through chapter 11 because I'm an idiot. That is actually the reason for a lot of things. So buckle up. We've got a lot of ground to cover as what we're going to see here is a sort of national renewal of vows. So chapter 9, verse 38, 
Because of all this, we make a firm commitment in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakali, and, and you know what, let me just do this. Normally, what I would do is flawlessly pronounce each and every one of these names with a masterful cadence that would just leave you speechless as all of your jaws drop to the ground at how impressive that was. But here's the thing, in sign language, they don't have in translations for names. She has to spell every one of them I read. So out of my great thoughtfulness and consideration for Christina, <laughs> and only that, we're just going to skip through verse 27. Anybody buying that? No? Okay. okay, well, I fooled you. What we see here is the nation recommitting themselves to a covenant to follow all of God's laws and instructions, and what they're demonstrating is how seriously they're taking this. This was an oral society, which means most information, stories, teaching was passed verbally. The simple act of writing something down was a declaration that that thing was of great importance. And they're not just writing it down, they're writing it down with seals. So this is not like when your kid comes home from school with a little permission form so they can go to the aquarium and you just kind of like sign it without even reading it because it's cool, it's an aquarium, whatever, science. This is like going to the courtroom with a bunch of witnesses and a notary of the public and lawyers and a Supreme Court judge signing papers that are legally binding with the utmost authority and gravity. That's how seriously they're taking this. You can't have an entire nation of people sign a scroll. Their names won't fit, especially you get that one guy like Ben Franklin and signs half of his name, covers half the paper, it's not going to work. So what they do is they have representatives, princes, Levites, priests, people who represent all the different people of the community who are signing on behalf of all of the people the commitment of all of the people declaring that all of the people seek, strive, and are dedicated to following the commands of God. They're committing themselves to following the law. That's the ten big, the big ten commandments. And the 613 do's and don'ts in the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, the law that God gave his people to set them apart from all other nations and to make them holy. They're saying, we're going to follow this. This is something that's important to us. This is something that we value, and we are committing ourselves. They even invite a curse on themselves if they don't follow it. We are going to follow all of these laws. That's how important what we're going to do is. That's how valuable this is. They are not committing to something new. They're making a covenant to keep a covenant that they had previously failed to keep. But what we see here is a collective sense of responsibility. They have failed to keep the covenant. They'd failed to follow the covenant before, but they were determined to honor it now to correct the mistakes of their past, and to honor God by the following of his law moving forward. They're demonstrating repentance. See, repentance is not like, hey, I did that, I feel bad, so I'm not going to do that again. I'll, I'll try not to do it until the next time I do it again, but I'm not going to do it again until then. 
Repentance will always manifest itself in practical ways. The most notable of which repentance will always manifest is with the desire and commitment to honor and obey the commands of God. So what we see in this list of names that takes us through verse 27 is designed to remind us of the community as a whole by mentioning the leaders by name. It's also designed to remind us of our individual personal responsibility to follow the commands of God. See, as children of God, we have an individual and a collective responsibility to God. See, there's this idea that faith is a private thing. It's nobody else's business, but it's yours. It's what you believe is what you believe. It's between you and God, and nobody else has the right to address or speak into it or talk about it because it's not their business. That is absolutely and completely unbiblical in every fathomable way. Your faith is personal, okay? Personal meaning your relationship with Jesus is something that no one can have for you. Right? Mom and dad can't have a relationship with Jesus for you. Your spouse can't have a relationship with Jesus for you. Every one of us is responsible for the development and maintenance of our own personal relationship with Jesus. However, there's a difference between something being personal and something being private. When we are called to a personal relationship with Jesus, we are also called into the family of Jesus, and we have a, a collective responsibility to each other. That's called accountability. And when we are called into the family of God, what that means is that we aren't just looking at ourselves and our own individual relationship with Jesus, we're also looking at the state of the community as a whole. And each and every one of us as individuals bears responsibility for the collective state of the body of Jesus. Now, the danger of that attitude is that it creates religious police. And start looking at everybody else. Let me tell you what you need to fix. Let me tell you what's messed up with you. Let me. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus didn't like that, so maybe don't do that. Your primary responsibility is yourself, is your own relationship with Jesus. That comes first. But we also do carry a responsibility to one another. What that means is when you're in a church community, it goes, man, there's something missing. And I'm really mad that the church doesn't have this thing because it needs this thing. Maybe the reason you're feeling the need for that thing is because God is calling you to lead that thing. Maybe that's where God's saying, this is where your role is going to be, serving in my family and in my house. And so instead of getting mad that they don't have something, maybe that's the gap that I'm placing you here to fill. Because the condition of the community as a whole is the responsibility of every individual who loves and follows Jesus. The idea that our relationship with Jesus is a private thing requires us to ignore a truly impressive amount of Scripture to hold it. See, when we are serious about a relationship with Jesus, we will welcome instruction, challenges, and conviction because we recognize them as opportunities to grow. How you respond to conviction will reveal the importance of Jesus in your life. Because there are times when the gospel is presented that it's going to feel really close to home. And there's times where it's going to feel like somebody's been reading your mail. Let me tell you a little secret from behind the curtain. We're not reading your mail. Okay? Rick and I are not going to your house and opening your mail to see what's in it and then putting it back. And see, we're not doing that. 
no person speaking on a stage has the power to create conviction. The conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. How do you respond to that conviction? Do you get defensive? Do you get dismissive? Oh, he's not talking about me. He's talking about somebody else. No, we're, we're probably talking about you. As soon as you start trying to point the finger at somebody else, it's probably meant for you. Do you get offended and huff and puff out like the big bad wolf? Or do you hear that conviction? Do you receive it, repent, and experience the transformation that God is working in your heart? How we respond to conviction reveals the importance of Jesus in our hearts. Verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Remember that verse? That's very important. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, all have knowledge and understanding. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse. They're inviting God to punish and curse them if they fail to keep this covenant. And an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops on the seventh year and the extraction of every debt. So they're committing themselves here in this renewal of covenant to follow all of God's laws, all of God's instructions. What they're doing here is specifically highlighting a few key areas where they had been negligent in the past. These are areas that they had missed, that they had done wrong. And so they're saying, hey, rather than repeating the mistakes of history, let's learn from them. Let's focus on these key elements to make sure we don't fail in the exact same place. Here are the elements that they're highlighting. First, we will not marry other people's. This is where that particular phrase becomes very important. Separated themselves from the people of the land to the law. What this means is that God is not encouraging his people to be racist. The people of the land is not a reference to a specific nation. It is a reference to those who live like the world and the culture around them. It is a reference to ungodly people who don't know God, who don't follow God, who don't love God or have a devotion to God. And this description could very well include any Israelites who chose not to separate themselves to the law. This is a description of all people who are not dedicating themselves to the pursuit of God and to following God. It's not about race, it's about faith. What they are saying is that out of our devotion to God, we will not hinder that pursuit by marrying people who aren't. We will not divide our interests, we will not join our lives together with them. Because those who love Jesus will not marry those who do not. And this is not just some like weird Old Testament thing. This command is reiterated in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6.14 where we are told not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So for those of you who are unmarried, let me speak to you for a moment. It's hard. 
And it can be incredibly disheartening to wait for the right person. But a devotion to Jesus, not just a belief in God, a devotion to God and a genuine love for Jesus, that is the most important quality in a spouse. It is also the easiest quality to compromise if someone checks other boxes that are important to you. You must not compromise it. Because if you do, there are so many instructions in Scripture that you will not be able to follow. The one thing that we can never compromise, the most important value that we can have in looking for a spouse is their love for and pursuit of Jesus. Don't compromise that. Now listen, it is important to understand here that they are making this commitment as a declaration moving forward not as an attempt to shame those who did not do this. If you are already married, this is not talking to you. This is not meant, oh, you married someone, that person's not a Christian, now look at how bad, no. That's not what this is for. This is a declaration moving forward. I will not hinder my devotion to Jesus by joining my life to someone who isn't. Because listen, marriage is meant to be a reflection of Jesus' relationship with the church. Marriage is meant to be a demonstration of the love of Jesus. It cannot be that if half of the people in it don't love Jesus. Parents, this is a value that you teach your children. As you prepare them for the world, this is what you, what you ingrain in their hearts. You lay a foundation on the gospel. You also seek to give them this value. You don't need to be marrying, joining your life to someone who's, which also means you shouldn't really date someone who's not a Christian. Okay? Like, look, I get it. I was in a youth group when I was in school. I went to church all throughout my whole life. I understand the concept of missional dating. It is utterly ridiculous and completely unbiblical. Parents, your role is to help ingrain this value in your children. They understand and know it. For those of you who are married, let me speak to you for a moment. This is a great opportunity for you to reflect on the covenant that you've made. Marriage is meant to be a demonstration of the love of Jesus. Is that what your marriage is demonstrating? To other people, when they look at how you treat your spouse and how you talk to your spouse, do they see Jesus in that? Bigger question, does your spouse Feel the love of Jesus in the way that you treat them and talk to them and interact with them. So for those of you who are married, one of the things, look, marriage is hard. And that journey takes you to weird places. And there are seasons of struggle and there are seasons of delight. Maybe it's time for you to renew. Time to refresh and time, like the nation of Israel, for you to recommit yourself to the vows that you made at the beginning that your marriage might be a reflection of the love of Jesus that all the world may see. The second thing that they are highlighting here is to keep the Sabbath 
This is the most important practice in the Jewish faith because this was the seal of their covenant. See, when God makes a covenant agreement with people, he seals it with a symbol. Noah got a rainbow. Abraham got circumcision. Kind of got the raw end of that deal. The Israelites got Sabbath. That rest, that Sabbath rest is so incredibly important. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier on in the study through Nehemiah, the importance of Sabbath rest, especially in a world and a culture that worships busyness. Because work is busy, life is busy, life comes at you 100 miles an hour, and it will never let up. The idea of having time is a complete myth in a modern society. You have to make time for the things that are important. Every moment of every day can be filled with important things, with urgent things, and with good things, leaving us without a single moment to spend on our relationship with Jesus. It is so incredibly easy to fill every gap of time in our lives with things that we believe need to be done. There's a reason for the old adage, the devil doesn't have to make you bad, he just has to make you busy. His job is not to make you the greatest sinner who's ever lived. His job is not to turn you into a witchcraft practicing pagan who sacrifices goats on Mondays to have good wealth. Like That's not his job. His job is simply to keep you from having a relationship with Jesus. And so if he can fill your day with good things and moral things and noble things that prevent you from having time to spend with God, he's winning. See, Sabbath rest is not just about not working. It's about saying no to the world, no to all the busyness of life, no to the idol of productivity, no to ourself and our own pursuits. It's about saying no to all the things around us to remind us that there is more to life than the things of this world. Sabbath rest is not about not working. It's about resting in God and resting with God. It's about taking time to intentionally and deliberately on a weekly, regular basis focus our hearts and minds on God so that He remains in the center of our lives. Drifting from God, which is something that many of us have experienced in our faith journey, almost always begins with a neglect of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest teaches us that we have to make God a priority in our lives. That he has to be bigger and better and more important to us than all these other things that demand our attention much louder and more urgently. And just to be clear, because I'm me and I can't help myself, there are people that do take a, a strong value on the Sabbath. They believe very heavily. My, my family had uh, some friends when I was in high school, and so they would always like to, to honor the Sabbath. And so they didn't work on Sunday. They didn't believe people should work on Sunday, and they held that conviction so intently. They wouldn't even go out to eat on Sunday. All the friends in our little church group, they would all go out to eat. They wouldn't go with them because while they didn't believe in working, they also didn't want to do something that made someone else have to work. I respected their conviction. 
I respected their consistency in thought because that's not a common second step to take. <laughs> Here's the problem. Sunday is not, never was, and never will be the Sabbath. Then <gasps> why are we having church on Sunday? What does that mean? We have church on Sunday as our holy day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. The symbol of our covenant with Jesus is an empty tomb. And so we have church, we celebrate, we worship together on Sunday as a holy day, not because Sunday is Sabbath. Sunday is, never was, and never will be Sabbath. Sabbath is and always has been Saturday. So if you want to be traditional about it, there is no, no reiteration in the New Testament that you have to practice Sabbath on the literal Sabbath day. But if you want to get really dogmatic, just so we're clear, Sabbath is Saturday. But you can practice it on Sunday. That's equally acceptable in the eyes of God. Here's the thing, though. The Jews had Sabbath once a week. They were extremely, extremely devoted to it. And it takes a great deal of faith to keep the Sabbath. Because you're trusting that God will allow you to get done the things that you need to get done while you have less time to do them. Because I'm going to take this day and I'm going to give this day, whatever that day you want to make it, I'm going to give this day to God and trust that He's going to allow me to get everything else done on the other six days. And even if I can't, I know that giving that day to God is more important than whatever I'd be able to get done on that day. It takes great faith. But it gets worse. The Jews didn't just have a Sabbath once a week. They had a, a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they would not farm the land at all. Can you imagine the amount of faith it takes to do that? As an entire nation of people having to trust that the harvest is going to be big enough on year six to provide for their families for the next two years, because you have to make it not just through the Sabbath year, but also through the next year until that harvest comes available. Right? They come to you like, hey, you know what? I'm going to work for six years and just trust that God's going to allow me to save enough for those six years to take an entire year off and devote my attention to Him. That's a big, huge amount of trust, and there's more. On the Sabbath year, they canceled all debts. So if someone owes you $1,000, it doesn't matter if they've $10 left to repay or they only paid $10 back, the debt is over. You know what that means? On the sixth year, ain't nobody giving out loans. Hey, man, can I borrow money? No, you're not asking for a loan. You're asking for a gift. See me in two years. For us, the canceling of debt is less of an economic thing and more a relational thing. The canceling of a relational debt is what we call forgiveness. People wrong us. They hurt us. They do things that leave wounds in our lives. And every time they do, it creates a relational debt. To cancel that debt is to forgive that action. Here's the thing. You cannot cancel a debt and demand the person keep making payments on it. So if you cancel a debt, if you forgive the debt, that means you can't keep bringing it up. You can't keep talking about it. You can't keep throwing it in the other person's face. You can't weaponize it every time you get upset because you've always got that thing chambered and ready to fire off. 
every time you bring it up, you indicate that that debt is not truly or fully canceled. Out of the grace that we have been given by Jesus, we are called to forgive one another, which is to cancel, not to forget that the, the things that they've done, not to allow ourselves to be mistreated or abused, but we are called to forgive the debt, which is to treat that person as if there was no debt between you. Verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God the priests who minister the, in the house of the God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of all our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and of our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of God, and to bring the Levites, to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive these tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithes and the tithes to the house of the Lord our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of God. This is the third thing that they're emphasizing and highlighting that they will not neglect the house of God. From verses 32 through 39, the house of God is mentioned nine times. They are dedicating themselves not just to God, but also to care for the physical location where his ministry occurs. And so they commit to tithes, they commit to gifts, they commit to offerings, and they commit to this additional thing, which is a third of a shekel that they give to help support the ministry of the temple. Now, the third of a shekel is a considerably small amount of money, but it's what they could give. Israel at this time was not a wealthy nation. They were rebuilding their capital city. They didn't have a lot, but even in their hardship and struggle, they were committing themselves to give to support the ministry of the house of the Lord. Now, the most noteworthy word from the rest of these verses, the key word, is first fruits. First fruits means they gave to God before they took care of themselves. It means they didn't pay their bills and then put some money in savings and then set aside some fun money to do fun things and then kind of see what they had left over to give to God. It means they gave to God before anything else. They gave to God from their harvest before they knew if they would have enough harvest to take care of themselves. They gave to God from their herds before they knew if they'd have enough to take care of themselves. 
They didn't give God their scraps. They didn't give him their leftovers. They gave to him first. They gave to him their best, and they trusted that he would take care of them with the rest. That was their devotion to him. What they gave to God came before everything else as of chief priority, including their firstborn sons. In a culture where the firstborn son was of particular importance, they gave their firstborn son to God. This is not for sacrifice, it's for service, to serve as a priest in the temple. They gave to God their firstborn son, not knowing if they would have a second. That is the priority that they have placed on God. Chapter 11. Verse 1, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now that the walls are rebuilt, they have to repopulate the city. They needed that in order to defend it, in order to rebuild it, and in order to make Jerusalem, an economically viable location. Some people volunteered to move back to the city, and they were honored and celebrated within their culture. The rest were chosen by lot. One out of every ten were selected and would move back to the city. As strange as it would seem, after all the work that has gone into building this wall, moving back to the city would bring hardship on many. Because they lived in the countryside, on land all around the city. They had land, they had farms, they had houses that they'd been developing for decades. To move back into the city meant they had to walk away from all of that. It would be difficult. It would be sacrifice. But every person in the nation was willing to do it. So we all have places, preferences for the kind of area that we live in. Right? Some of us like to live downtown, some like to live in suburbs, some want to live so far away from other people they can lob a grenade in their backyard and nobody will hear it explode because America. And those preferences are fine. It's not like one's right and another's wrong. But those preferences need to be lesser than what is good for the kingdom of God and what his people need. And so sometimes... The best thing for the church, the best thing for the kingdom may be that you live in a place that is not your residential location of choice. It may be that because of the situation that you're in that you have the ability to help other people with where you live. It may be that as fun as it is to lob a grenade in your backyard and have nobody call the police on you, it may be that you need to live around other people so that you can minister and share the gospel to them. Too often, we come to the church with selfish agendas, a selfish focus, thinking about our priorities, thinking about what's good for us, thinking about what we want, what we like, to the neglect of what's good for the community as a whole. The problem with individualism isn't that it values the individual, it's that it elevates the individual above the community which is the opposite 
of what the Bible teaches. An entire nation of people so devoted to honoring God and to following Him that they were all willing to endure hardship to live in a place that they didn't particularly at that time want to live if that's what was best for the community. Verses 3 through 36 cover something that has been really lacking for the most part in Nehemiah so far. Long list of names. Once again, let's just marvel at my graciousness, thoughtfulness, and not reading all of these. I <laughs> can't even finish the thought. There's one name of note in the whole list. If you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see that at the top of each psalm, there's a note as to who wrote it. Several of the psalms are attributed to a guy named Asaph, whose name appears here. Other than that, just a random list of names of people that we don't know and know nothing else about. But what we see is an orderly society. Priests, Levites, princes, rulers, singers, gatekeepers, men of honor, men of valor. What we see is a society where everybody has a purpose and everybody has a place. This church is not a spectator sport. And when you give your life to Jesus, you're not signing up to come to a place for some sing-along songs where you listen to somebody talk and then you go about your merry way. Every child of God has a role to play in his kingdom. And the question that you should ask yourself is, what's yours? What is it that God is laying on your heart? What is it that God is leading you to do? What role do you play in his communal people? Because we all have one. Why do we keep seeing all these names? These names of normal, ordinary people that we don't know anything else about? Because that's the church. That's the church. These are not rulers of nations. These are not kings and people who changed the world. They're people who have been forgotten in history, but whose names were never forgotten by God because they're His. God builds His extraordinary church on the shoulders of ordinary, normal people like you and me. And if you look at every person who does incredible things in Scripture, what they do is not because they're extraordinary. It's because they were ordinary and God did something extraordinary through them. The reason we keep seeing all these names is to remind us that in the kingdom of God, those ordinary, normal people are important. See, the enemy comes along and he says, you can't do that. You're no good. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. You're not qualified enough. You're not equipped enough to do that. You can't. You're not some special, super spiritual person. Look at all your mistakes. Look at all your flaws. You can't do that. Because you're just normal. God builds his church on normal. God changed the world with normal. Ordinary people. Who God used to do extraordinary things. Why do you think he called fishermen? a tax collector. God builds his church with ordinary people. And you are a child of God. Never let the accusation of the enemy discourage you from doing what God has laid on your heart to do. Because what makes it extraordinary is not that you do it. 
is that God does it through you. And when you are a child of God, even though history might never note who you were, your name will never be forgotten as it is written in his book of life. We all have a role to play in this kingdom. What's yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you that you would love us, that you would call us to be your own. And that even after all that we have done to be unfaithful to the covenant that you made with us, that you continue to renew your vows and our vows with you. That your faithfulness is not conditional on our perfection or our faithfulness, but that you love us you sent your son to save us in spite of all that we are. God, I pray that you would stir in us a passion for you, that you would reveal to us the place that you are calling us to, that you would pour into each of our hearts the role that you have for us in service of your kingdom, and that you would give us the courage to stand in that place and to do what you have laid on our hearts to do that we would be a priesthood of all believers, that we would be a kingdom that sits on a hill and that shines your glory and your light to all around us, that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.